This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, it's Pia. Every Wednesday, we are bringing you a bonus podcast, a handpicked story from the week's round of the Sunday magazine that we really think is worth hearing. Of course, you can hear all of our stories. They're all worth listening to. <laughs> on the full podcast we put out Sunday and on the CBC Listen app. All right, here's this week's highlight. Let's just talk about screw-ups. You might, like I do sometimes, feel embarrassed when you make mistakes. We know we all make them. And if you look hard enough, you'll find mistakes and their lasting impact all over the place. Terry O'Reilly has shown that in the world of advertising on his CBC radio show, Under the Influence. And his latest book looks at lessons, discoveries, breakthroughs born out of blunder that go beyond the business world. The book is called My Best Mistake, and Terry and I talked about some of the best of the best back in October of 2021. On Under the Influence, you tell stories about brands, and many highlight just how key mistakes have been to success. So what made you want to dig into the bigger value mistakes can have um, with this book? I've always been absolutely fanatically crazy about creative solutions. And if anybody's listened to the show or our podcast, you'll know that I'm endlessly fascinated by that aspect of humanity. And then when I thought about it, I thought, you know, there's there's an even deeper thing to go after here, which is what happens not just when a you know, somebody makes a little mistake and they end up creating a, an interesting product, but what happens when somebody has a catastrophic career mistake? Because there's two kinds of people in the world, I think, and that is people who experience a catastrophic mistake and then they run away. It's devastating. They recede into the woodwork. They try and forget, but they don't pursue their career anymore. They go in another direction. Then there's the other kind of person, which I'm fascinated with, who embraces the catastrophic mistake, even though they may have lost their revenue, their credibility, their job. And somehow they're so resilient that it ends up being the best thing that ever happened to them. And those are the people I was really most interested in. And you also write about your experience in, in this realm. I mean, in your in your job, in your show, you have uh, seen the value of those sort of imperfections, not of your first hand, but others in some of the advertising work you've also done. And you write in your book that back in the day when you were directing commercials, you didn't always go for the perfect take, quote unquote, the perfect take, but rather the take that simply felt the best. And uh, it may be hard to articulate, but can you try to explain what a best take feels like. I was primarily a humor director. So if someone had a funny commercial, they would come to me. So that was sort of my little niche. When I had actors in the room, and I always worked on the floor with actors, by the way, P. I didn't work from behind the glass. I sat out there in the booth with the performers because I wanted to feel their performance firsthand. So I was always chasing like perfect imperfection. In other words, hmm. A take might happen where the timing was slightly wrong or the inflection was slightly off or somebody mispronounced a word. But if it made me laugh, I would stick with it. I would go with that take or I would try and convince the writer 
who wrote the script to go with that take because it just felt better. It was just a funnier moment. It was more human rather than the absolute Frankenstein perfection of just cobbling together the best sentence from every take. I hated doing that. I liked an organic take, and I welcomed those little imperfections. Authentic, which has so much currency these days, right? And just funny, Um, like just silly and funny. Just funny, fair enough. And you couldn't, and they couldn't do it a second time. That was the other interesting thing about those kind of takes, where their their timing was off, or the mispronunciation, or the slight hesitation. When when asked to do it a second time, it wasn't as fresh or as real. This book is uh, has many many stories, and it was kind of hard for us actually to choose which ones we wanted to talk to you about. But I said I really want to talk about this first one, so I want to talk to you about the Swanson family. People of a certain age know Swanson dinners. And this takes us back to the 1950s to um, American Thanksgiving. And the Swanson family, their business, overestimated just how much demand there would be for turkey. So this wasn't like, hey, we need a you know couple dozen extra pounds of turkey or a couple extra two pounds for my home turkey dinner because I'm having a couple extra people. And then there's tons of leftovers. They overestimated this by... 260 tons. Like it was a massive <laughs> failure, a massive mistake. They didn't have the facilities to keep 260 tons of turkey fresh. Like they didn't have enough refrigerated facilities. Who would, Terry? Who yeah. would? And especially. <laughs> okay, in so tell us what they did with all these extra birds, because this is the story you tell in your book. First of all, they figured out a way to save the turkey from going bad. So they. They put it in ra- refrigerated rail cars because they could get enough rail cars to house 260 tons of turkey. But they had to keep the, tr- this is the funny part, they had to keep the trains moving in order for the refrigeration to work. So they, while they tried to solve their problem, which was, what are we going to do with all this turkey? They had to keep the trains moving back and forth across the country to keep the the, the refrigeration working, which is very funny. So these turkeys are, are logging miles while the Swanson uh, company is trying to figure out what to do. Then one of their sales uh, people came up with this interesting idea. He'd just been on an airplane and he was served some airline food in a little metal tray. And he wondered if they could maybe create a turkey dinner using uh, a tray. And the tray would have different compartments, one for potatoes, one for the turkey, one for gravy, one for, uh, you know, stuffing. And they wondered if that was one way they could save the turkey. So they pursued that idea and they had to figure out lots of things, Pia, like, you know, it all had to cook at the same time because you're putting it into the oven for 25 minutes. So the potato has to cook at the same rate uh, of time as the turkey and the turkey has to (laughs) cook at the same time as the dressing. Not get too dried out, all those things. Yeah. Right. And, uh, And so they figured that out. And they weren't the first people to do that, by the way. There were a few other products on the market that were a frozen dinner. But here's the genius of it all. The year was 1954. It was the year where television really landed in North America, where suddenly people went from being radio-centric to discovering this new appliance in their living room. So Swanson created and, and trademarked the TV dinner. Even the packaging looked like a TV. If you go back to that early Swanson packaging, it looked like it had wood paneling and it had tuning knobs on each side of the... (laughs) 
and it had like an oval shape, like the oval shape of the screen. And that was what saved everything because TV was so fantastic and so new and so space aged that people gravitated to television, then gravitated to these Swanson TV dinners. And the little metal tray not only was a way to cook it, it was also a way to eat it. Once you peeled back the foil, you had an instant plate. Yeah. They went through their 260 tons in one year. In, less, in, in, just, in months, they went through it. In this story, uh, and so many others in your book, it strikes me, Terry, how important it is to be in the right place and the right era, right, for a mistake to turn into success. And in 1954, as you say, TV had just come into, well, it was relatively new in the United States. Um, is that what made it such an appealing concept? I think so, because remember, that was post-war, so there was a lot of optimism as uh, America got back to business, meaning, you know, companies didn't have to produce things for the war effort anymore to get back to producing, you know, um, brands and products, etc. And And the space race was on then, like everything seemed futuristic in the 50s. So this Swanson TV dinner just fit right in there. It felt like a futuristic way to have dinner. So it was a perfect, you know, storm of events. I want to stick with sort of things of the past and another well-known um, thing that you talk about in the book. And this is the movie Jaws. Most people, I think, have seen Jaws or heard about Jaws. Um, and this is sort of representative of some of the stories in your book because it's about those stomach sinking moments when people drop a ton of cash into idea and then just sort of say float away <laughs> on the water. And Jaws, the shark, is central to the 1975 classic. But you talk about a young Steven Spielberg insisting on bringing his vision of it to life to the tune of a quarter million dollars. This is 1975, quarter million dollars, lots and lots of money. Tell us about how the shark and Jaws came to be. Well, I think everybody knows the the shark malfunctioned and that Spielberg had to deal with that. I think I think that's a well-told story. But just backing up a beat or two, he was only 28 years old at the time. And he had that young director bravado where he didn't want to use miniature sharks in a, in a tank somewhere. He wanted three full-sized animatronic sharks built for this film because he wanted to shoot it in the ocean. So building those three sharks, as you said, took a big chunk of his budget because he needed one that swam left to right, one that swam right to left, and then one that looked at you mm. head on with teeth. And he wanted eyeballs that rolled back. He wanted the gill slits to throb. Like he wanted it to be real. So they tested all out in Hollywood in, in their big freshwater tanks there and everything was great. They go out to Martha's Vineyard. They put uh, what he called, he called the, Bruce, uh, the shark Bruce after his lawyer. He put the, the shark in the water and it sank to the bottom immediately. But what started to really happen, like that was just one problem. The next problem was everything started to seize up. All the, the, the uh, animatronics inside the shark started to corrode and started to malfunction and the problem was, which I don't think a lot of people know, his big mistake was he didn't test the sharks in salt water. Huh. It was the saline that started eating into all the mechanics of the sharks. So you have to imagine that Steven, this is Steven Spielberg's big break as a, as a young film director. He's on location with all his crew, with all his cast, and his shark, the star of the film, is not working and will not work. So he goes into his hotel room, depressed, sits there in the dark and frets, wondering if this is the end of his career. And then he asks himself a very interesting question. He, he asked himself, what would Hitchcock do? 
And when he looked at the problem that way, he came up with a solution which was, what we can't see is the scariest thing of all. So then he decided to shoot a film that where you didn't see the shark, you only implied the shark. So if he had a fin and a tail fin going through the water, you would get a sense of how big the shark was. Or if you saw you know, the shark dragging those big yellow um, barrels through, uh, through the water at a certain speed, you, you had a sense of how magnificent this beast was. And then, of course, in post-production became the ultimate fix where John Williams, the wonderful composer, came up with that, you know, infamous Jaws two-note motif, which then truly became the shark. So as the shark became, you know, came closer to camera, the music would get really loud. And then when the shark swam away, the music would get very, would, would slowly disappear. You only saw the shark, Pia, for four minutes. The full shark. This blew my mind. This blew my mind, Terry, when I read this. I know. Because you think you've seen it the whole movie, haven't you? Yes, exactly. Four minutes of screen time. This is a bit part in most movies. (laughs) (laughs) But what a wonderful solution to a catastrophic problem. I want to talk about another um, fictional monster, and this is the Incredible Hulk. Um, He's green, in case anyone doesn't know that. Uh, He's menacing, he's big, and he's hulky. But it wasn't supposed to be that way. Stan Lee came up with this kind of a a very highly unusual superhero, for lack of a better word. When he grew up, Stan Lee, as a kid, he loved the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde story a lot. So when he was trying to come up with a a different kind of superhero, he decided he wanted to create a kind of a lovable monster. And he wanted it to be kind of like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where, you know, there was one side of him that was a scientist and then he would then transform into this gigantic monster and, and neither side could control when that would happen. So that was his concept and he called it the Hulk. He wanted it to be gray because he wanted it to be an unusual color and he didn't want to offend any ethnicities by picking a color that existed. So he picked gray and he thought even gray was kind of spooky and weird. But when it was printed, every page, the Hulk was a different color. It was light gray, then dark gray, then black and, <laughs> and it made him crazy. And he asked the printer, "What what was what happened there? Why is why is this mis, like why is this failing? Why what mistake happened in the printing process?" And the printer said, "Gray is the toughest color. It's just a mix of different things, and I can't make it consistent." So Stan Lee was facing this you know problem. The second issue is due to come out, and he thought, "Okay, what am I going to do?" And he said, "Well, what color is failure proof?" And the printer said, "Any color but gray." So he, uh, Stan Lee said, okay, let's make him green. Let's make him green. And Stan Lee says, that's how much time he gave it. That's how much thought he gave it. It was literally a second and a half. And that's how the Hulk became green. And when you think about the Hulk, that's, that's such a huge part of its persona oh, yeah. and its brand. And, and it all came because of a printing mistake. Hmm. You know, it's, it's interesting hearing these stories, um, not only because they're just you know, very entertaining, but also because as you tell us these stories of obstacles that turn into opportunities, it, it's, it all looks rosy in retrospect, right? Like, it's all like, yeah, cool. That's a great story about the Hulk. But if you're going through it, if you're in the midst of it, that rosiness isn't there. So when you're in the middle of it, uh, Terry, how do you get to that point of being able to see an opening when a door has seemingly closed? I think that's the aspect of these people that I chose to write about. They had a they had a resilience and they had a, um, a grit 
that they muscled through the problem rather than running away from it. As I said earlier, they, they thought the only way out is through. So each one of these people, like Steven Spielberg and uh, Stan Lee and the Swans, all these people who faced insurmountable problems, they literally didn't run away. That, that's the key thing. They muscle through it, and then it gets to a point, because you, you have muscled through it, that you find this little shred of light in this dark tunnel. And then as you run toward it, you actually see that there's a hidden gift inside yeah. this mistake. So for someone out there, Terry, because again, this is a collection of stories, but we all experience or have to make choices about risk, reward, failure in life. Um, what did it teach you about the concept of failure in doing this book? And, and for people out there who say, you know what, it ain't worth the risk. I think it is worth the risk. I think the biggest risk in life is playing it safe. The big lesson from this book is that you have to embrace the obstacle. And by that, I mean the solution to the problem, the solution to the catastrophic event is actually sitting at the heart of the mistake. So you have to, for lack of a better uh, term, you have to peel the mistake like a banana because at the center of the mistake is the solution sitting patiently waiting for you to find it. And if you think about Jaws, that's what Spielberg did. It is a huge mistake, huge mistake in not testing out the uh, apparatus in salt water. So he peeled the mistake right down saying, if I can't have, if the shark won't work, if I don't have enough money to build another one, if I don't have enough time to build another one, if I'm stuck with this, what the hell am I going to do? So he peeled it right down to, am I going to lose my job? Am I going to lose my career? What if you can't see the shark? And that was just sitting at the heart of that whole problem is the, the shark is broken. Let's embrace the obstacle. It's a really wonderful read. As I said, um, not just entertaining, but there's a lot of deep, deep lessons from these stories that I think um, each one of us can apply to our own um, life and lifestyle and jobs and personal life. So thanks for writing it, Terry, and thanks for talking to me. I do appreciate it a lot. Thanks for you. Thanks for having me. Terry O'Reilly is the host of CBC's Under the Influence. He's also the author of My Best Mistake. And you can find all the stories we bring you each week on The Sunday Magazine by heading to our website, cbc.ca slash Sunday. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thanks for lending us your ear. We'll talk to you again on Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.